chapter 5, please. And I'd like to read a few verses commencing from verse 22. Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rehim. Therefore David inquired of the Lord and said, You shall not go up, circle round behind them, and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be, when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly. For then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so, as the Lord commanded him. And he drove them back, the Philistines, from Gebal as far as Gezer. My title this morning is a problem that needed to be dealt with. In Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 16, we are made aware of the presence of David. The situation was Saul had fallen out of favor with God. This prophet Samuel had the unpleasant task of informing him of the circumstances and situation. And it says that Samuel mourned for Saul. And God came and spoke to Samuel and he says, You mourned long enough for Saul. Fill your horn with oil. Go to the city of Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse, and I want you to anoint Saul's successor. Samuel was slightly reluctant in the fact because of fear that if Saul found out of the nature of his mission, that he would try to kill him. And so God told Samuel to take a heifer to go uh, to sacrifice and also to anoint Saul's successor. And so Samuel did as the Lord commanded him. And he came to Bethlehem. He came to the house of Jesse. He made Jesse aware of the circumstances of his visit. And Jesse, very proudly, no doubt, presented his seven sons before Samuel. And as Samuel looked upon them, and as he viewed them with the eye, the human eye, he was saying, surely this is God's choice. And each time God said, no, that's not my choice. And at the end, when he had viewed the seven sons, Samuel was in a bit of dilemma. God, you told me to come and anoint the sons of Jesse, yet you've told me these are not the men. And he inquired, of Jesse, had he any other sons? And I get the impression that Jesse more or less shrugged his shoulders. Well, there's a young lad. He's out in the hills minding the sheep. He's only a wee fella. And Samuel says, bring him. And when he was brought before Samuel, the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for he is the one whom I have chosen to succeed Saul. One comment I just want to make before I continue. As far as Jesse and as far as the family were concerned, David was of little importance. The reason I say that is when Samuel came with a heifer to sacrifice, this was a very important event. This was a very uh, a great event in which the family would very much hold in great respect and would want to be involved in. And while the family, Jesse, his wife, his two daughters, his seven sons, would have been gathered to be involved in the sacrifice, Samuel was left in the field, or David was left in the field. He was too young. It didn't matter. 
It didn't concern him. But you know, David was in God's thoughts. And although he wasn't in his father's thoughts, that's Jesse, God, David was in God's thoughts. One commenting on this, that situation said the following, Don't be afraid of your gifts and capabilities being overlooked because you live and move in an obscure sphere of life. The Lord knows where the instrument is lying that is fit for that special work needed to be done. God knew where David was. And when he was brought, God told Samuel, Arise and anoint him. And what I want to do this morning, pardon me, is take a walk with David on this journey that he entered upon. From being a shepherd boy one minute, sitting in the hillside, looking after his father's sheep, till standing before the prophet of the Lord, being anointed as king of the nation of Israel. What a, what a shock it must have been to him. Life was going along normal. Nothing out of the ordinary was happening. And then all of a sudden, something tremendous happened. But yet, although David was chosen of God, although he was anointed uh, by God to be the successor to Saul, he had a journey to undertake. For if he was to complete the plans and purposes that God had preordained for him, if he was to ever sit upon the throne as the king of the nation of Israel, he was going to be required to walk with God. He was going to be required to go on a journey. If he stayed in the fields in Bethlehem, he would have never sat upon the throne as king of the nation of, of Israel. And so... I want us to walk with David very briefly this morning. I want us to take note of the journey he undertook, of the challenges he faced, of the approach he had to facing those challenges, of the victory that he achieved over those challenges. And most of all, that in so doing, we not only acquaint ourselves, we not only acquire knowledge, but that we encourage ourselves in the Lord. For when we see God in action, and when we see God moving, and when we say, well, that is God, and we realize that the God of David's day is the God of this day in which we find ourselves, for God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and what he was able to do for David in David's circumstances and in David's situation, he's able to do equally for each and every one of us here this morning. And when we realize that, our faith is lifted to a particular level in which God comes and he speaks and he ministers and he gives guidance, praise his wonderful name. In chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, we read of David's anointing. Towards the end of the chapter, David finds himself not in the fields of Bethlehem, but in the king's palace. Saul was prone to depression was prone to swing moods. And it was suggested that if someone could be found who could play the harp, who could sing, that in playing and singing, he may calm Saul when he's in these particular moods. And David was summoned. And it says that David found favor with Saul. And he was appointed the court harpist and musician. In chapter 17, from traveling from the fields of Bethlehem to the king's palace, we find him on the battlefield facing Goliath. 
And as I thought of this, I thought of King Saul and the mighty battles he had fought and the victories he had achieved. And here he is standing in limbo on the battlefield. For 40 days, the Philistines had challenged them. For 40 days, the Philistines had mocked them as Goliath came out, challenging them to send out a champion. And when David appeared and he went out to meet Goliath, it just highlights the desperation that Saul and the army must have been in. For they, did they realize, did they fully appreciate that if David did not succeed, they would have to surrender to the Philistine army. But David made clear to Saul, he made it clear to Goliath when he met him, I'm not here in my own strength, I'm here in the strength of God Almighty. And of course we know the outcome of that battle, the victory was won in chapter 18 of 1 Samuel. From facing Goliath on the battlefield, we see David is appointed as captain in Saul's army. And it says that he found acceptance not only in the eyes of the people, but in Saul's servants. He was well liked. He was well respected. There was something about him that made him so appealing to people. And David proved himself on the battlefield. And having returned after a great slaughter of the Philistines, the women of the city met him. They were singing, they were dancing, they were playing tambourines. And they were singing a song, but a song that displeased Saul. For the song said, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. And because of that song, circumstances and situations began to change for David. Saul was angry. Saul was full of hatred for David. And as we read in chapter 19 of 1 Samuel, David is playing as he had did beforehand, playing the harp, singing, endeavoring to calm Saul in his particular mood swing. Saul is sitting on his throne, his spear in his hand, and he throws it. And as one described it, Saul tried to pin David to the wall with a spear, but David escaped. And we find David from a life in the palace, from a life on the battlefield, winning battles for Saul, we see David becomes a fugitive on the run. In chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, David is joined by his father, his brothers, and their family. And a party of some 400 men are gathered around him, and David becomes their captain. In Samuel 23, 1 Samuel 23, we see the situation in the city of Keilah. The Philistines have uh, surrounded it. They're attacking it. David says to the Lord, Shall I go and fight the Philistines? And God says, Go. And David went. And it says, the scriptures, there was a great slaughter. And having delivered the city, David made the city his base for a time. But Saul learned of his lodging in the city. And David learned that Saul knew. And David went to the Lord and he says, Well, Lord, this is the situation. What do I do? Will the people betray me? Will they give me up? 
And the word of the Lord that came back to David was, yes, the people will give you up. So David and 600 fled from Saul and from the city. In 1 Samuel 24 and chapter 26, we are presented with the situation that Saul is in David's hands. So David has opportunity to take Saul's life. And yet on both occasions, he refuses. One, he is found in the cave sleeping. David and his men are in the back of the cave hiding. They make their way forward. They know, they recognize Saul. One of the party says, let's slay him. David says no. And he cuts a bit off the tail of his robe. On the second occasion, Saul and his army are encamped. They settle down for the night. They're sleeping. It says that God caused a deep sleep to fall upon them. And David walks into the camp up to where Saul is. He lifts his spear. He lifts his water jug that was sitting on his head. And he makes his way out of the camp. And on both occasions, when Saul is some distance away, David calls to Saul and he makes him aware that on two occasions he had the opportunity to kill him. But he refused. For David's concern was, as he said, the Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. In chapter 27 of 1 Samuel, we see David fleeing to the land of the Philistines. David's concern was, and he said it, I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. Or for David, a worse situation, I believe, would be that he would find himself face to face with Saul and it should be a case of either he slays Saul or Saul would slay him. And David was concerned that he would not sin against God and lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. So David leaves the land of Judah steps over the border into the land of the Philistines. He puts distance between himself and the problem. Because he says, if I go into the land of the Philistines, Saul will not pursue me. And that turned out to be the fact. And David found in King Ahish, king of Gath, he found political asylum, he found sanctuary, he found a place where he was no longer on the run, fearing Saul, keeping on the move. And even the king allocated the city of Ziglag for him to, and his followers to dwell in. In 1 Samuel 28, we see David team up with the king, with the army, the Philistine army, to go against the nation of Israel. For David had found favor even in this king who did not worship the true God, who was a worshiper of false idols, but there was something about David and he was drawn to him and he actually appointed David and his followers as his personal bodyguard. And when they went to war, the Philistine army went in front. David came behind with the king. He was prepared to follow him into battle. But the princes of the Philistines decided they don't trust David. He may turn. In the midst of the battle, he may turn and fight for the Israelites. And so he is required to return to Ziglag. And we are familiar, are we not, with the fact that when he returned, he found that the Amalekites had attacked the city. They had burned with fire and they had carried off the inhabitants. 
Scripture tells us that David and his men wept. They wept until they could weep no more. And then anger arose. And David feared for his life. He thought, these men are going to stone me. But what does it tell us? He encouraged himself in the Lord. And having encouraged himself in the Lord, he called for Abathar, the priest, to bring the ephod. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this troop? God said, pursue. David said, shall I overtake? God said, you shall overtake. David said, shall I recover all? God said, you shall recover all. So David pursued. He won a tremendous victory. He recovered all. He recovered more than he had lost. For it tells us he lost neither an animal or one individual in the whole situation. And he acquired the spoils of the Amalekites at the same time. And so we come to Second Samuel chapter 1. And David learns that Saul is dead. In chapter 2, we see David inquiring of the Lord. His inquiry is this. Shall I return to the land of Judah? And if so, where shall I dwell? And God says, go up to Hebron, the city of refuge. There were 48 cities in the land of Judah. Six of them were appointed as cities of refuge. Three were named by Moses. Three were named by Joshua. Hebron was one of the ones named by Joshua. They were cities in which men could flee if they were fugitives. And as long as they remained in those cities, they remained safe. David found friendship. He found acceptance with the citizens of Hebron. And while there, the men of Judah came and anointed David king over the house of Judah. And so we come to chapter 5. In the beginning of chapter 5, we are made aware that all the tribes came to David and they anointed him king over all the tribes of Israel and Judah. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven and a half years. In Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judea. But for David... He needed to find a place, a base from which to function, from which to rule, from which to operate as the king of a nation. He could not continue to operate in Hebron, a city of refuge. And so he's directed to the city of Jerusalem. But the Jebusites were in residence. They were occupying the city. And as we are made aware, when David and his army approached and to take the city, the Jebusites mocked them. They were confident in their own fortification. They made reference about the blind and the lame being sufficient to repel them. What are they talking about? They're talking about their gods. Their gods who had eyes that saw not. Their God who had feet that could walk not. And they said, at jesting at David, Our gods... They're blind, they cannot see, they have legs, they cannot walk, but they're more than adequate to defeat you. But David had the wisdom of God and the Lord on his side. And instead of storming the city's walls, they entered the city by climbing up the water shaft that was in the city. This was a shaft over which the water supply flowed under the city of Jerusalem. They entered the city 
They won a great victory. They drove out the Jebusites. And what does it tell us in verse 10 of chapter 5? It tells us, So David went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. But in the place where God wanted him to be, doing what God wanted him to do, was not giving him immunity from difficulties and problems. For if he thought, well, I'm in Jerusalem, I'm setting up the earthly kingdom, I'm putting my government in place, I'm establishing my authority over the nation of Israel, I'm free from trouble and strife. But an old friend arrived on the scene. The Philistines heard that David had been anointed king of Israel. So they went to war. They spread themselves in the valley of Rehem. That statement indicates they came in vast numbers. They came with determination. They came that they were going to make sure that this situation, David being king over the nation of Israel, wasn't going to go any further. And I feel very much by that statement, David and his army were greatly outnumbered. But you know, David was in a dilemma. For these were the people who had given him political asylum. These were the people who had given him sanctuary. These were the people who had helped him. The king was the king who held him in great esteem and who had made him his personal bodyguard. David was in a dilemma. Should I fight them? Or should maybe I try and make a peace deal with them? But God says, no, you go out and you fight them. So David went out and he claimed a great victory and he drove them away. And it says that they fled. They left behind their property, their spoils, but also they left behind their gods. And David and his men collected the spoils of war and the images they collected and they burnt with fire. And David may have returned to the city of Jerusalem and thought, this is great, no more problems. But we are told in verse 22 that the Philistines came again. They spread themselves in the valley. They were ready for another fight. The fight was not out of them after their first defeat. And they were coming again the second time. And I trust as I have quickly run through the situations that you've picked up that David had a plan to which he stuck to on all circumstances and in all situations. David inquired of the Lord. He didn't say, I am able, and he was a capable man. We only have to remind ourselves of the song that the women sang. David has slain his tens of thousands. He was a very skilled warrior, a very fierce warrior, a man that had great ability. And yet what do we see? He doesn't take the fight, the battle for granted. He inquires of the Lord. But not only did he inquire of the Lord, but he waited for the Lord. He writes in Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. Isaiah writing in chapter 40 and verse 31 says, But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. David 
could identify with what Isaiah had written, not because he may have read it, but because it was his experience. He not only waited for God, but he cooperated with God. For, as we have read, when the sound of a going in the mulberry trees was heard, the authorized King, Version, King James Version says, David stirred himself. In other words, it was time for action. And he worked in co- cooperation with God. And as he did so, he saw God work and he saw victories won. But also David realized that the battle was not his, but it was God's. As the writer in Second Chronicles 20 tell us, we are reminded of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid or dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. David recognized the battle was the Lord's. Also, he was obedient to God, for as we read there, and David did so as the Lord commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines. He did all that the Lord asked of him, and the outcome was victory. One may say, well, what has David, his journey, the things he was involved in, got to say to us today? Well, let's fast forward some 3,000 plus years till today, to the year 2012, to the year, if God tarries, there's 30 days left in this year, and this old year will be gone into eternity. And what does it say to us? Well, firstly, I think you'll agree with me that David proved that God was faithful, that David proved that God was dependable, that David proved that when he called upon God, he wasn't sideswiped, he wasn't pushed to one side, he wasn't told, come back some other time, I'm busy, I have other things on my mind. But when he came to God, he found an open door. He found one who was interested, one who had ears to hear, one who had hands and feet and eyes that could see and do, one who had a voice that could speak, unlike the graven images of the Jebusites and the Philistines. And David proved that God not only heard, but he answered. And when he answered, he knew exactly what was needed. How often do we say, you know, as individuals, if I knew then what I know now, things would be different. But we realize this morning God is never in that position. God is never caught on a worse. You may think, but I only decided a moment ago what I was going to do. But God knew long ago what you were going to do. We're reminded, are we not, of the statement written in the book of Malachi chapter 3. The Jews, they are starting to return to Jerusalem after the exile in Babylon. And Malachi, in writing in his book, is writing about the faithfulness of God. But he also includes the statement that God made. For God said, I am the Lord, I change not. 3,000 years plus may have passed. Many things have changed. Many things have altered. But this one sure thing, 
God hasn't changed. His determination hasn't changed. His desires haven't changed. His goodness and kindness towards each and every one of us hasn't changed. It's no greater than it was for David. Praise his wonderful name. For the scripture reminds us, God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't teach, he doesn't treat certain people differently than other people. We are all on the same plane as far as God is concerned. Not only does it say that remind us that God doesn't change, that God is faithful, but I feel very much it also says that for many within the Christian church, they are found at Hebron, the city of refuge, and God's plan for them is to be at Jerusalem, the city of the king. Let me explain. For those found in Hebron, they're saved. They're soundly saved. They've taken that step of faith. They have acknowledged their sinners. They have acknowledged Jesus Christ as the Son of God. They have acknowledged that His coming to this earth, that His dying upon the cross of Calvary, that His burial, that His resurrection was for them, that the price for the sin of the world, but also their sin, has been paid. And they have called out to Jesus. They have asked for forgiveness. He has heard them. He has saved them, and they know whatever happens, they're bound for heaven. But they're found in Hebron for various reasons. For some, it is because they're not prepared to make the changes that need to be made. You know, the old Course says, it was a glad day when I was born again. And the Christian church, with a 100% voice, says amen to that statement. But then the chorus goes on to say, and the things I used to do, I do them no more. And the number of voices drops. I think back over the years of those I have endeavored to counsel, of those I've endeavored to give wisdom and direction to about their lifestyle, about the things they're doing, the things they're involved in, they have made that profession. They have made that statement of calling on God. They have asked for salvation. They have experienced salvation, but they're holding on to the old life. They're not prepared to give it up. And you know, they say, well, I'm all right. I know what I'm doing. And when I hear those statements, it grieves me because what they're actually saying is, well, Jesus, you know, I know better than you. I know better than you. And the sad thing is, as time progressed, they began to realize they were wrong and Jesus was right. For what did Jesus say? What does Matthew tell us that he said? He says in Matthew chapter 6, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. This is not a church saying it. This is not an individual saying it. This is Jesus, the Son of God, saying it. Again, Jesus, say, speaking in Matthew 12, says, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, that is destruction, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. Again, we remind ourselves of the fact that God is a jealous God, 
for speaking to Moses in Exodus chapter 20. We have there recorded for us the words that God spoke in which he said to Moses, For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And surely he has every right to be so. When we consider the price he paid, the length to which he was prepared to go to bring about the salvation of this old world, to set men and women free from the shackles and the bondage that Satan had put upon them. Surely he has every right to be jealous. He doesn't want to share us with Satan. He has paid the price to liberate us. He has paid the price to set us free. We belong to him and him only. Our God is a jealous God. James writing in chapter 4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Surely the scriptures can be no more plainer than that. Friends, we need to realize this morning that you cannot play in the devil's backyard on a Saturday night and walk into the house of God on a Sunday and think it is all right. God's word makes it clear. It's not all right. So often I've heard the comment, well, I've tried and it hasn't worked. Well, then I say to them, try again. And this time, you need to try with the help of the Lord. David had to come the second time against the Philistines. There may be many questions. Why was he not 100% committed in the first occasion? We can draw conclusions. But never he came the second time. He not only defeated them, but he drove them right out of the city, the, the land of Judah, right to their very borders. He made sure for once and for all they were not going to come back and disturb him. Paul writing in Philippians chapter 4 says, I can do all things through Christ with strength to me. James writing in chapter 4 says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And the apostle John writing in 1 John chapter 4 says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We need to prove God's word. We need to stand upon God's word as David did and claim the victories that can only be claimed in Jesus' name. And then again in Hebron, the city of refuge, there are those who are comfortable where they are. They have taken that step of faith. They have called upon God. They have experienced salvation. They're in that situation. I'm happy with life where I am, the way things are. I know that should Jesus come or call, I shall go to spend eternity with him. And they seem to have no desire to advance themselves, to move forward in the divine will and plan and purposes of God. For salvation is not the end of things. Salvation is only the beginning of what God has in store for his people. He has planned out, he has mapped out a plan for each and every one of us. It starts with salvation, but it doesn't end there. He has much more in store for us. And if we are to 
fulfill the calling of God in our lives, if we are to experience the blessings, the joys, the victories that are found in Jesus, then we need to step out in faith. For it is only when we are where God wants us to be, doing what God wants us to be doing, that we find full fulfillment in God. But then in Hebron, there are also those who feel they're not up to the job. They're, fear, they're full of fear, fear of failure, fear of not being able to complete the course, fear of letting God down. And because of the fear and the emotions that they're feeling, they stay where they are. But you know, they need to be acquainted with what God says regarding them. And we need to be acquainted and refreshed this morning about what God says. For in Jeremiah chapter 29, we have God's plan explained, presented towards each and every one of us when God says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. What a tremendous plan God has for each and every one of us. That he can lift individuals from what would seem obscurity and bring them right forward in his divine will and plan and purpose. David, a shepherd boy, minding sheep in the hillsides of Bethlehem. One would look at him and say, well, what prospects has he? But God had a plan for him. And God has equally a plan for you and I this morning. He may not call us to be the king on a throne, but he has a plan and purpose that is equally as important as David's was. And his desire and his longing is not that we sit and we remain still in Hebron, in the city of refuge, but that we step out on faith and walk with God and complete his plan for our lives. You know, when we stand in fear and dread and say, I'm not up to it, I'm afraid of failing, we're putting pressures on ourselves that even Jesus doesn't put upon us. What does Matthew record for us? The words of Jesus in chapter 11, which Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Jesus says, walk with me. Come on, let's go for a walk. I'll walk beside you. I'll show you. I'll lead you. I'll guide you. I'll instruct you. I'll give you the wisdom you need. That's what I want to do. For Jesus says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The writer in Proverbs chapter 18 reminds us of what God says. He says that he is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Paul writing in Hebrews 13, speaking from his experiences and his walk with God, he could say that God, of God that I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Again, writing in Hebrews 10, Paul again says, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised and again, the writer in Proverbs chapter 3, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not upon thine own understanding, and in all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. But then also, I believe, God is saying there's a sound of a going in the mulberry trees. For David 
that sound says time for action. Time to be up and doing. Time to be moving forward. You know, there may be situations you have talked about them. You have prayed about them. You have talked more about them. You have prayed more about them. And maybe this has gone on for weeks, months, even years. And I feel very much that God is saying, no, there's a going in the mulberry trees. This is my sign to you. It's time for action. Not only time for action, but I assure you that I'll not be going behind you. I'll be going in front of you. And I'll prepare the way for you. God wants to bless. He wants to bless each and every one of us. He wants to give you fulfillment in, our, in each one of our lives. But if we want that, then we need to be prepared to act. David writing in Psalm 133 says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. For there the Lord commandeth the blessing. I feel we could take that to a more personal level and we could say, where a man or woman dwells together in unity with God, there the Lord commands the blessing. In 2 Samuel 5 and verse 10, we are made aware that David, when he was found in the city of Jerusalem, this statement was made. And David went on and grew great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. Why? Because he was where he was in his relationship with God. The difficulties he faced, the victories he won, they didn't discourage him, they encouraged him. His faith level when he entered the city of Jerusalem was a lot higher than when he first went up against the first problems that he faced. God was preparing him for what he had in store for him. The picture I have in my mind's eye is God standing in heaven behind him, a massive warehouse. The doors are open and everything that we need, that we require, is found in that warehouse. And it's full from the floor to the ceiling. There's no room to put the slightest thing more in. And God is saying, this is all for you. This is yours. This is what I want to give you. Can I say it with great respect this morning? God wants to spoil us and spoil us rotten. He wants to give us more than we can what we need. He wants to give us more than we can ever think or ask for. He wants to swamp us with blessings. Luke records for us the words of Jesus when he was speaking regarding how God wanted to bless his people. And these are the words he used. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. This is God's desire towards his people this morning. I want to bless you. Not give you enough just to get you through. Not give you a wee bit extra so that you can be comfortable. I want to swamp you. I, I, I think of the, the rich farmer who had a tremendous crop and he says, what will I do? I'll pull down the barns and build bigger. And I think God wants to give us blessings that we're not able to contain them. That even building bigger barns will not be sufficient to contain what God has in store for us. The Apostle Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Surely this is the goal 
for each and every one of us. That at journey's end, we would be like the Apostle Paul. We have fulfilled God's plan, God's purpose for our lives. We have done what God has required us to do. We have walked with the Lord. We have experienced his faithfulness. We have enjoyed his blessing, his fellowship. And we have lived a fulfilled life in the Christian pathway. Can we say that? Will we be able to say it? Well, my friends, we will not if we are still stuck in Hebron, the city of refuge. This morning, can I encourage you to step out in faith? You know, 30 days, if the Lord tarry, this old year will be over. But this month, not only will people be talking about Christmas, they'll be talking about the new year. And the changes they're going to do, the debts they're going to go on, the things they're going to stop doing, maybe the things they're going to do that they haven't done, haven't attended to this year. And if truth be told, when the new year comes, evidence will be that was only talk. They talked about it, but they weren't prepared to do it. But the challenge for the Christian church the challenge for this church, the challenge for you as an individual, I believe the Lord would bring this morning, is this. Let's not talk about it just, but let's, as was David, when he heard the rustling of the leaves in the mulberry trees, that he stirred himself, and he did what God commanded him to do. Thank you.